0: Salam and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today
1: we shall be listening in to an interview with Professor Yehuda Shenhav, speaking on the politics of translation.
0: Hello and welcome to our program. My name is Yuval Ivry, and today we are talking to Professor Yehuda Shenhav Sharabani about his initiative, Maktub a Hebrew-Arabic book series and translate- translators forum. Yuda Shehnav Sharabani is a professor of sociology at Tel Aviv University and one of the most influential critical theorists in Israel. He received his PhD from Stanford University. He published numerous books and articles, among them Manufacturing Rationality, published at Oxford Press in ni- uh, 1999, The Arab Jews, a postcolonial reading of nationalism, ethnicity, and religion was published uh, in Hebrew in uh, 2003 and English in 2006, and Beyond the Two-State Solution, a Jewish political essay published in 2012. In the past 10 years, the center of his work shifted towards issues of language, sovereignty, and translation. These transition was, was part of, his, uh, of a personal and political journey of returning to the Arabic language and culture, the mother tongue of his parents who immigrated from Iraq, and the language of the land. From an early stage of this process, Professor Shin Sharabani Rabani started translating texts from Arabic to Hebrew. Firstly, for learning purpose, and gradually it formed a separate project. In our conversation today, we will focus on this personal and political journey and discuss the theoretical and political implications. We will discuss it in light of the past and current status of Arabic language in the Israeli society, and in light of his previous works on the Arab Jews and on binationalism in Israel-Palestine. So, uh, Professor Shenhaf Shaarbani, let's start our conversation with your personal journey into Arabic language. And maybe we'll, uh, we should uh, start with the moment that you reclaimed your Iraqi family. Thank you Yuval. Uh, Iraqi family
1: names, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's a moment, for me it's a moment, a symbolic moment. Because when I was uh, young, we changed our uh, family name from the Arab Iraqi name of Shahrabani into Shanhav which in Hebrew, it means ivory. You couldn't have chosen a more <laughs> white family name. <laughs> Uh, to whitewash yourself so to speak in the Israeli society where Arabic names are not appreciated so that was an act of survival and uh, uh, during the time when the moment has arrived to face that abandonment of the family name and to reclaim it it was uh, a, bit, a bit problematic because most of the life I lived as a session half. So what do you do? How do you erase in order to reclaim? Or do you juxtapose the two in order to uh, leave the traces of erasure? And fixation of fix, uh, fixing the, uh, uh, the, the wrongdoing of the past? So I have made a decision that as an academic, I sign as Yudah Shenhav, and as a translator, I sign as Yudha Shahrabani, and I live uh, well with this uh, schizophrenia. The, the, the point, Yuval, is that uh, uh, typical to second generation of uh, Jews from Arab countries, uh, which I label as Arab Jews, uh, their experience is that in order to integrate in the Israeli society they have to leave their uh, Arab upbringing and uh, march uh, march into the uh, elements and the convention of the Israeli Zionist society. Uh, the moment uh, which uh, preceded that Reclaiming of the name was a very ironic and tragic moment, which was the Gulf War, when my father, my Iraqi Baghdadi-born father, passed away uh, from heart attack during uh, the Gulf War when an Iraqi missile hit his neighborhood, and this symbolic. Uh, reclaiming of the uh, of the present by the past if we can say so was for me a turning point because I did not want during my father's life to engage in Arabic because he was teaching Arabic, His Arabic was his profession and for Oedipal reasons, politicals or others, I refused to be part of it when my father passed away, I uh, got really obsessive into not only reclaiming my older family name, but also to uh, command to, 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 uh, to reclaim the Arabic language, in which, uh, which was prevalent in our home when I was little. I, until I, my, uh, I was five years old, I have heard only Arabic, although it was the Jewish-Iraqi dialect, which diverges from, let's say, uh, Fusha, or the uh, uh, spoken Palestinian dialect in Israel, so, uh, and that I give you a clue for the, uh, how I think about it, Uh, in fact, what I have found when I uh, in my journey to return into arabic that i was returning into a different path of the past mm-hmm. and this is the case always that you if you want to look genealogically you cannot go into the particular uh, starting point from which you wanted to uh, de- depart or redepart or uh, embark on a new journey of memory and that—that
0: and that was the the moment that you start working on your uh, book, the Arab Jews. Um, how can uh, that was? Do you see the connection between the two? Uh, of course, two of course.
1: Uh, when I wrote the Arab Jews, I I wrote it from a sociology of knowledge point of view, rather than uh, depicting the history of the Arab Jews in Arab countries and in Israel which I did somehow, but my point was to show how these categories uh, 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 emerge with conflict and the purification, uh, purification of one category from the other as two binary categories that if being merged pose a threat to the unity of the Zionist, uh, or the coherence of the Zionist uh, ideology and message. So my point was to juxtapose the two categories and to show how this juxtaposition uh, uh, creates a steer in itself. So the reaction to the book in themselves are the story of the category Mm. of the Arab Jews, the vociferous reaction they, 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 they. Uh, by the way from Arab Jews themselves uh, I remember uh, I remember uh, a story where one Iraqi Jewish woman uh, writes an autobiography and she starts the first sentence in her autobiography is a disclaimer I'm not an Arab Jew by disclaiming, by saying I'm not an Arab Jew, she participates in that discourse about the other Jews. That means uh, has a larger, a broader uh, implication that when you try to erase something, you ha- always present it, or as Giatris Pivak would say, represent it. Uh, sometimes in, in in Israel, the the, the argument is the Arab Jews are not Arab Jews anymore, they deny uh, their past, they, uh, so, they were socialized into a new society, etc., etc., etc. And the point is, you cannot erase that uh, history, or uh, that memory, that keep asserting itself into yeah. the present.
0: Yeah, so so you we're talking about the erasure of the, the the Arab from the Jew in the Arab Jew, and and you did a connection between the Palestinian and 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 uh, and, and, and how the the, the 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 Arabic was erased from the land, and and how the knowledge of Arabic which was the the, the knowledge of the. the most of the people that lived in the land before yeah. forty-eight were speaking Arabic, Jews and yes. Muslims and Christians. What hap- happened after forty-eight, And what happened with the knowledge of Arabic in the land? In, in
1: That's that a, that, this is very interesting uh, because we, uh, we know, you know, I know that Arabic is not one language, it's not one dialect, it's not one thing. It's a multiplicity of possibilities in a big matrix, which is called the Arabic language matrix uh, which is composed by different dialects and uh, tens and hundreds of, of dialects and of course the level of the language and the way it is being expressed in different media uh, literature everyday life, etc. Now, uh, uh, what happened in Israel since '48? and as you mentioned correctly that most of the population, Jews and Arabs were uh, proficient in the Arabic language in one genre or dialect or another, this language was completely obliterated uh, during uh, those 70-some years since the establishment of the State of Israel. Now, before I tell you, uh, because we did a study of the command of Arabic among uh, Israeli Jews in Israel, which the outcome is a grim outcome of uh, complete illiteracy, the, 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 the being in this matrix of Arabic language uh, was basically a very, uh, I would say, um, uh, deceiving because I thought that reclaiming my older name and reclaiming the Arabic language would bring me back into my past. And what I found out that I could not go into that past because the language that I actually have learned is a Palestinian or a, a Palestinian dialect and Fusha, which is a literary Arabic, and both of them are diverged, they are diverged or different from the Iraqi dialect that I've heard at home. So when I come home and I say to my father and uh, to my mother. Haji uh, Mark Lil she corrects me and reprimands me and she says we don't say Mark, we say Wuyaki which is she she brings me back and corrects me into that original kind of original past as if there's this kind of origin and so in the survey
0: what, what you showed uh, it was very interesting that the 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 sec, second generation, third generation of Arab Jews, uh, like you and generation after you, um, um, less with, have less knowledge now of, of Arabic than the Ashkenazi Jews. That's a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, so
1: the, 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 yes, the study that we made a study, comprehensive study of, as I said, of of, of the command or proficiency of Jews in the Arab language in Israel, is that. Bottom line is that less than half percent of the Jews in Israel can read a simple text in Arabic. And as a sociologist, I would say this is statistically uh, not significant from zero. And this is really a mind-boggling phenomenon. I mean, as uh, my friend, uh, the late Salman Atour, the author, Palestinian writer uh, with whom we established or at least uh, conceived the idea of uh, establishing Maktoub and the Translators Forum. He used to ask uh, in a very, very uh, honest and, and sincere and direct way, tell me, Uda, what is it? What did you have in mind when you came here if you come to a region you learn the language of the region the lingua franca and so how could, could you explain the fact that the Jews that returned so to speak to the promised land uh, did not try to learn the language of the, of the region and behave like visitors, like tourists are you, uh, have you arrived to this place only for a temporary period and you are planning to go back to Europe or wherever you have been before? This is a really, I mean, a question that when I uh, remember Salman saying that, it's really uh, 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 an astonishing phenomenon. And within that, uh, I would say the uh, complex complexity of uh, illiteracy in Arabic, there are uh, ethnic differences. Uh, among those people who can read the text in Arabic, there are four times more Ashkenazi Jews than Mizrahi Jews, those, the, the descents of the Arab Jewish uh, generation, which is really, really, uh, 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 I would say, bothering what happened to those who have heard Arabic at home, or at least second generation and third generation people who have heard their grandmothers and grandfathers speak in Arabic? What happened to them? How did they disappear from the Arabic scene and left left the uh, field for Ashkenazi, uh, uh, second generation Ashkenazi uh, uh, people? and And... Of course, the the explanation lies in the institutional framework and cultural framework of the Israeli society. On the one hand, you have second generation, third generation of uh, uh, Arab Jews who uh, refrain and shy away from the Arabic language in order not to be associated with what is considered uh, a lower culture, uh, language of the enemy and all this kind of propaganda Ashkenazi Jews mostly learn uh, Arabic in the universities and in the uh, military and they uh, actually uh, can read a text and can listen and decipher but they are mute, they cannot speak the language so in essence what we find out is that the biography of the English, oh, sorry, of the Arabic language in Israel have uh, moved uh, into a Latinized uh, language, which you uh, like Latin in Europe prior to the uh, Renaissance, where you could listen uh, to the pray and read the text. But you're not required later on to speak the language. And now, when you turn the Arabic language into Latin, and this is a term that uh, Yoni Mendel, Doctor Yoni Mendel, Jonathan Mendel uses in his book, "The Creation of Israeli Arabic," the uh, uh, Latinization we have to remember has political ramifications because Latin is a pre-national language so you bring you take Arabic that was really uh, language the lingua franca and turn that into a pre national language while the Hebrew rises as the main sovereign language of the region so against this the back,
0: backdrop of this of this reality, you decide in two thousand and fourteen together with the Sammantou and other Colleagues and friends uh, to establish Maktoub. So please tell us, uh, Maktoub, uh, and and you see it as a political and cultural project, uh, not only a literary one. If you can tell us a little bit about the principle, about the. the
1: When we established Maktoub uh, with Salman Atour, with uh, Yoni Mendel, with yourself to some extent, we uh, have decided to. uh, base this uh, enterprise on different principles that, from those who have been the custom in Israel in translation from Arabic to Hebrew uh, for one thing uh, Israelis have been have used to translate lit- uh, Arabic literature without copyrights without permission of the authors That was the custom. And the argument was we want to hear the Arab world. We have no relationship with the Arab world or we have uh, unamicable relationship with the Arab world. Uh, Those are enemy countries, whatever. We will not get the permission anyway. We translate that as a mission. We have decided to uh, To change that tradition we do not translate texts if we do not have the permission one way or another from the creators of the text this is not out of the market uh, regulation or adherence to copyrights this is not the reason behind that the reason is the dialogue The dialogue, the dialogical uh, principle behind that. We are in dialogue with the creator of the text even though he or she sits in a different space uh, which does not have, uh, I would say, simultaneous relationship with the place where I am located or we are located. The second principle is teamwork and teamwork has at least two reasons why one is theoretical and the second is political I would say I would start with the political Uh, it was the custom that Israeli translators mostly Jews with good intentions have translated the texts uh, individually in their offices, in their, uh, on their desk, with dictionaries, uh, whatever is needed for the translation work, produce a, a final copy of the translation uh, that has to be fluent, that has to be read as if it was written originally in the Hebrew language, uh, the idea of the transparent translation, etc., etc., etc. It doesn't make sense politically particularly under the uh, uh, power, power relations and colonial relations as you say, between Arabic and Hebrew nowadays. And in order to uh, change that, basically, uh, I would say asymmetry that exists in the... Uh, basically... What happens in individual translation, it uh, reproduces the asymmetry that exists outside of the translation room. So we have decided that all our translations are being done with joint teams that are binational and bilingual teams that include Jews and Palestinians as translators, and they work together. Now, that, that uh, resonates well with theory, because if you look at the history of translation, and of course, you know, there's no one chronology or one history, but if I would mark the mid-15th century, for example, uh, in the Renaissance, that at one point in time, translation was defined as an individual creation. Uh, I would mention uh, Leonardo Bruni from uh, uh, Firenze, who uh, has written a tractat on translation, where he explains why a translator needs to know both languages, the origin of source and the target, in order to complete the work. This is as opposed to, I would say, an imagined or real model of Al-Andalus, of Toledo, where uh, translations were done by a group of people who were traveling and moving in the space to meet other people as part of a dialogue where one person could have known Arabic, another would have uh, have known Latin, the third one would know Hebrew or whatever, and they make together the translation. And uh, uh, this individualization of translation, which we can call the emergence of the neoclassical model of translation, which is based on individual translation. Is something we, that we try to mitigate in our work. And so, before we go into the next uh, principle, can you give some example of this kind of teamwork yes. that you do in Maktouli? Yes. For example, the next book that is going to uh, be published—we published already nine books. We have twelve books in preparations. The next book that is going to be published uh, in September 2019 is called. Uh, in Hebrew, belashon kuta, in Arabic, lisan maptur, or lisan maptura, which is uh, amputated tongue, or, or um, uh, severe tongue, or broken tongue, and, and truncated tongue, which is a, a metaphor that emerged in the Hebrew literature for the muteness. Of the Palestinians, so we here also reclaim the uh, the derogatory uh, uh, metaphor of uh, amputated tongue, and we publish uh, in this uh, book 75 uh, short stories of Palestinians, only Palestinians from uh, Palestinians from Israel, Palestinians from Gaza. Since from the West Bank or the diaspora, uh, we received permissions from the author, to translated their work, and on each story we actually uh, teamed together three or four people working uh, back and forth. Uh, 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 both in individual spaces, but in also in public spaces, where they discuss their creation and production and negotiate in a dialectical way, and we allow for the translation to re-emerge as a new creation, as a new cre- as if it was a cloning of the of the uh, of, of the process in, on the translation floor. Now, with the uh, permission of the author, we position the translation next to the source, and not in a regular customary way, where a translation replaces the source. Now, that, that uh, gives us clues uh, to, the, to the argument, which would sound very uh, provocative, but it's not. The translation that is faithful to the or- original is not a dialogue. it's not a dialogue. What does it mean to be faithful to the original? I mean, what is the faithfulness? What what is the original? I mean, there are many questions. <coughs> I'm sorry, that emerge here. But if you, if the if the if the translation is faithful or loyal to the in a simple way. Linguistic way to the source, then you don't need it. It's a notary translation. Uh, uh, it's 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 even a plagiat. Yes. So if you want to think about dialogue, you think about hesitations, silences, uh, divergences, uh, differences with the author, and in a dialogical translation, you would bring back as a way of trans- uh, reflection and a dialogue is a reflection back to the author. And so the author get the uh, translation back from the translation room and if the author can read the Hebrew, they read it directly or if not, we uh, do kind of back translation into the Arabic mm. and this is Part of a dialogue.
0: Yes. So, so uh, you personally uh, translated almost twelve novels and and, and dozens of, of short stories. And you have, uh, I think, two main authors uh, that you are work, you are translated. Um, um, one of them is uh, the famous Lebanese writer Elias Khoury, uh, and and uh, and uh, and, uh, um, and uh, Salman Ato, uh, the Palestinian uh, Salman, uh, Elias Khoury. You, you, you translated six of his novels and and and. Um, and Samana 2, 3. And you talked about the dialogical, on the dialogical aspect of connection to the author. So, so w- this is one, one question that I want you to talk about. But maybe before that, let's, let's I think, bring the, the third principle that you mentioned in the beginning, that is the oral, the connection between the oral and the textual. And I think that this dialogical, what you said about the teamwork, have the, the oral and the textual, and the dialogical the, the aspect with the author have this kind of dimension. If you can
1: Of course, the uh, idea of uh, uh, the the third principle of Maktoub, of course, is uh, to juxtapose back the oral tradition and the textual tradition, and has a lot of uh, uh, ramification or predicament uh, on the uh, dialogue that takes place in uh, translation. I mean, you'd see the separation between the, mor- the oral and the textual uh, uh, against the history, uh, in which uh, the literary translation got caught in an enclave, uh, isolated enclave, uh, which in which the text uh, the text uh, is not being spoken, particularly after the. Uh, the revolution in reading where people stopped reading loudly and so there is a passive reading and that is part of the co- uh, problem because you don't hear the language and in fact most of the translators that translate today into Hebrew from Arabic do not speak the language they read well, they have broad knowledge, I'm not vilifying anybody but the muteness is part of the problem here because what we do uh, in Maktoub, and I will go back in a minute to the idea of the dialogue again, and with some of the authors that I translate, the point is that literature is not an end in itself. With all due respect we respect literature, we love literature, we love Arabic literature we love. the problem is that you cannot stay in the text itself but you want to use the text as a reason as a, as a cause and effect of an action in the world and this is the political aspect where you act in the world into a situation where you create with the literature a situation in which Jews and Arabs sit together and speak in Hebrew and Arabic simultaneously uh, and thanks to the literary text. Now, if if you talk about dialogue, yes, in essence, there's a dialogue with the author and I was privileged to am privileged to have a constant dia- dialogue with the, the renowned uh, uh, Lebanese writer uh, Elias Khoury, whose uh, writing I adore I really am mesmerized each time I read a novel of him and I submit myself to the process to immerse in the process of not only reading him and translating him but also talking to him back and forth and if we would have time I could give you an example where source and target intermingle because we create that uh, situation where we talk uh, not in a chronological manner, but in a circular manner about the relationship between text and, 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 and uh, uh, source and target, in essence in a, in a, almost in a Bachtinian way where there are chronotopes of time space. I mean Elias Khouri sits in Beirut and uh, writes about Haifa or Lut, and I visit Haifa so I'm in a place where he's writing about and he's writing in a different time where, uh, so, so differences in time, space, and text that uh, to some extent uh, weaken the distinction between fiction and reality and creates an action in the world. A dialogue, a dialogue, if we if we uh think about susir and the relationship the arbitrary relationship between a signifier and a signified a sign. Derrida introduces time, temporality into that relationship. We can introduce dialogue into that relationship. And a dialogue is not only the conversation that I just described, but it has other characteristics. First is a circular movement, even recursive relationship. Second, uh, it uh, to, some, to some extent blurs the distinction between uh, intratext and intertext, life and, 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 and fiction, and and, and, and and allows multilingual uh, dialogue, polyglot dialogue, which also uh, uh, blurs the distinction between the oral synchronic conversation and the uh, text which is uh, posed in time and lingers uh, behind him. Uh,
0: Professor and have Sharabani, many thanks for really, this is a fascinating uh, conversation. We have so many things that we didn't have time to discuss, but uh, inshallah we will we'll have uh, other opportunities to continue our conversation. Inshallah, I, I would
1: like to, if I may. Yes. Uh, one last sentence. If I may say, if I may, I would say that translation is for me a, a model, a paradigm of how to think about politics and political life itself because translation in a dialogue, in a binational uh, and bilingual model, is a model for joint sovereignty and and de-orientalization of the relationship between Arabic and Hebrew in the Israeli colonial context.
0: Uh, that's, that's really important, and, and you wrote about it in, in, in your theoretical books, and I think this uh, uh, initiative, Maktoub, is, is doing it in practice, and doing something in the world. That's, uh, that's I think, the f- fascinating thing, and very important political, and the connection between political and theoretical that we, we discussed in our conversation is really uh, present in, in, in Maktoub. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you, Yuval, for
1: uh, uh, this interview. Thank you very much.
0: This was Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave it a rating.